Avatar The Last Airbender. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Possibly, probably, we'll see how I'm feeling at the end of this reminiscence. Um, one of the, one of the best, actually not possibly, it is one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of television. It's, it's kind of hard to, to poke holes in this season. Uh, but I feel like I kind of have to. Because here's the thing. My opinion of season two of Avatar Last Airbender is so high that I basically need to work backwards from a perfect score. Um, as of right now, it's there. It hits it. It's, there's, I, I won't know until I'm at the end of this, but my current headspace says that there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and so I'm looking forward to figuring that out and seeing where I land at the end of this, however long this takes. Um, we're going to talk about all of season two in this episode. Uh, which is something I probably should have done for season one in hindsight was to do it all at once. Um, but yeah, we're going to do, we're going to do it all in, in, in one go. Um, and just like, uh, season one, we're going to break it down episode by episode. So let's get started. Episode one, the avatar state. Uh, we, we start off this season pretty, pretty chill. Uh, they're leaving the, the North Pole, and it's time for Aang to start learning earthbending. Because, hey, you know what? It's season two. He he hasn't mastered waterbending, not by a long fucking shot. Uh, and, but the, the, the foundation for his continued training in waterbending exists. Because he's got Katara, and Katara's mastered waterbending. So, you know, he's, he's got that all set up and ready to go. Um, he uh, is sent off to uh, meet up with General Fong uh, at an outpost where they will give him an escort so he can continue on to Omashu to begin his earth uh, bending training with King Bumi. And um, it was interesting when I was watching that episode being like, why would... Well, I mean, it's not unusual that other people know who King Bumi is, but it seemed weird having that statement come out of Paku um, and on one hand, yes, he would probably know who the king of Omashu is. But on the other hand, uh, both Bumi and Paku are members of the Order of the White Lotus. So there is that connection as well. I think it's incredibly subtle foreshadowing, uh, that they did that. Um, and we learn a little bit more about the White, the, uh, Order of the White Lotus in this season. Not a lot, just a little bit. Um, and we'll get to that when we do. Um, and it's, uh... It's very cool. Anyway, he, he goes to General Fong, and Fong is like, Dude, if you're in the Avatar state, we'll just romp or stomp all over fucking Ozai and end this war tomorrow. And Aang's like, I know how to do the Avatar state. And Fong's like, well, we'll help you figure it out. And through a lot of trial and tribulations, he figures out that Aang only activates the Avatar state when in, like, mortal peril. And he puts him in mortal peril, and then Aang activates, or he puts Katara in mortal peril. Uh, and naturally, Aang gets right proper upset about that. And uh, Romper stomps all over General Fong and his base, which is, I'm sure is not the uh, the outcome that the general was looking for. Um, in the end, it is uh, it's very devastating, and uh, they knock out General Fong because he's kind of insane. And they decide to go on their way to Omashu all on their own without the escort or anything like that. Meanwhile, Azula has entered the playing field, and 
When it comes to, I mean, Azula's fucking phenomenal. She's incredibly powerful. She's incredibly intelligent, at least in the beginning. Um, and she is just, she's like Zuko as he may have been if he wasn't an idiot. Um, she's just like the perfect, uh, weapon of Fire Nation villainy. She's just distilled Fire Nation. She's fanatical. She's conniving. She's, you know, inspirational to her, to her followers and all of that stuff. Um, and so she's, she's involved. And, uh, Iroh and Zuko, well, I don't, so forgive me. Um, I don't quite recall the events of Iroh and Zuko's stuff in these early early episodes. So I'm going to kind of gloss over it a little bit. Um, I think it happens pretty much right outside the gate where Azula shows up and she's like, father regrets and he wants you home. And Iroh's suspicious is all hell. And then it gets slipped up by whomever is like leading them onto the boat that they're prisoners. And so they go on the run and become um, enemies of the Fire Nation. And then they have to like cut their you know, hair buns and ponytails and stuff like that as a sign of dishonor. Uh, and they're now on the run from the Fire Nation and are enemies of the Earth Kingdom. And that whole uh, storyline is pretty fantastic. And I'm going to throw this out there because I want to I want to be crystal clear from where, where my knowledge ends. Um, this season delves harder into like Eastern culture and uh, belief systems than the previous season did. We, we know that the, the bending styles are all based off of martial arts, but there's a lot of spirituality in season two. There's a lot of culture in season two, culture based on actual factual cultures in our world um, and ideas based in our world. I have no idea if that holds true, like if the representation in this show is accurate to what the actual... Uh, real world equivalent is I don't know I like to think that it is because it sure fucking seems like it but I don't know for certain um so the whole cutting of the hair thing I believe is a legitimate thing but I don't know I'm not at all versed in the culture to which that would belong and you should know that I'm not because I'm not entirely sure what culture that is and I will not assume so I just want to set that expectation right out the gate it's a very impactful moment in the show, and I'm pretty positive it's based on an actual thing. I just don't know what that is. Great first episode, though. Um, as like, but here's the thing: because there are some incredibly strong episodes, that episode does it's it's all right. Um, I love the interactions between Aang and Katara. Like, it's it's pretty much. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead because it's basically the next episode that confirms it, but. This episode does not, or this season does not shy away from Aang and Katara's relationship. Um, they don't do a whole lot, but it's definitely established. Um, they're not together, but their feelings for each other are, are known at this point. Not only to the audience, but pretty much to themselves and each other as well. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about that fucking episode. Episode 2, The Cave of Two Lovers, is the first episode in Avatar The Last Airbender I would consider to be perfect. I know I said the season was perfect, 
And a big reason for that is episodes like The Cave of Two Lovers. It is incredibly funny. It is incredibly emotional. It has some wonderful romantic stuff. It has some iconic moments and lines. It serves a great purpose to continue the story. It has incredible world building, both in terms of culture and in terms of the origin of bending, both of which I am fascinated by. Um, and also, it's the first time that Aang and Katara canonically kiss. You don't see the kiss, but the kiss happens. And, like, you can you can argue all you want that, oh, it's just like when the torch goes out, the crystals come on. But the way you know is that their hands joined in the darkness. That's how you know. They canonically kiss, and I will fight you on that. Anyway, this ep this episode doesn't even... If you've seen it, you know. The, the fucking nomads with the whole, like, the song of the two lovers and die. Uh, all of that. Every bit of it is perfect. Um, my personal favorite moment, besides the kiss and all of the, the romantic tension. Actually, there's so many great moments. Let's talk about a couple of them. One, I love Aang's, like, if it was a choice between kissing you and dying, that is excellent. Because that, like, fuck. I may not have said those exact words, but I've gotten really close to that in my own personal history, so I can commiserate with Aang in that moment so fucking hard. It's excellent. And it's it's hilarious. And you just gotta shake your head and be like, I've been there, bud. I've been there. Oh, God. Um, and it's it just makes me smile because it's so on point. And it's exactly what, like, you would say if you were not familiar with that situation it's fucking excellent so there's that bit which i absolutely adore that bit then of course there's the kiss which i think is also phenomenal uh and then there's the bit where ang is like you guys want to come with us to omashu and the guy's like nope all right well see ya <laughs> it just ended like that it just <laughs> uh it just it's done really well i mean you know they're not they're not gonna hang around uh, forever, and um, this is also one of the the first times significant, in my opinion, significant characters show up in an episode that we don't ever see again. I don't believe the nomads come back. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the nomads do not return. Um, nor does like General Fong return. I guess I could be wrong about that as well. But in season one, it was like every fucking Tom, Dick, and Harry that was introduced showed up later in the show just to be like, hey, look, don't you remember Haru from episode six of season one? No? All right, well, here's Haru again. He has a goatee. Ooh, that's different. Um, but goddamn. Perfect episode. Absolutely perfect episode. So many great moments. It's one of the highlights of season two, easily. And that is a fucking... That's saying something. Because season two has, like, not a wasted moment. Episode 3, Return to Omashu. At the end of episode 2, we go back to Omashu to discover that the Fire Nation had taken it over. Hip hip, oh fuck. And they go in to discover that Boomy surrendered. Um, and I was actually exploring the avatar. I don't know why. Sorry. I just noticed that my voice sounded really cool right now as so I'm really leaning into it. I was exploring the avatar of the last airbender subreddit the other day. And somebody pointed out that by surrendering the city peacefully and preventing any amount of bloodshed that Boomy probably saved countless lives of his own citizens. Um, and it's particularly hilarious when Boomy will later use the uh, Eclipse to single-handedly take his city back, which is 
just fucking cool as all hell. Um, but anyway, as of right now, the city is overrun by the Fire Nation. And a couple of things happen in this in this episode. I think the most important things that happen in this episode is the assembling of Azula's squad. Azula gets her, uh, I mean, yes, 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 she, she assembles her squad. So we get Ty Lee and we get May, um, to join Azula's avatar hunting brigade. Or at this moment in time, it's the, uh, Zuko and Iroh hunting gang. Um, and, uh, Azula is fantastic. And I love Ty Lee and May as well. Um, but for me, they, they're entertaining, but they're fairly one note, Tylee and May in the beginning. And we don't get enough, we don't get a lot of depth about their characters until season three, primarily when they go to Ember Island. That's, that's the, the episode where we get the backstory and the time that we need with those characters in order to really flesh them out. Um, May certainly gets more development than Ty Lee does due to her relationship with Zuko. Um, but they are, they are good characters. There isn't a bad main character in this show. Full stop. I can't think of one. They're all pretty phenomenal. That may change in season three. I don't fucking know. It's been, you know, the further I go into this show, the longer it's been since I've seen it, you know? Um, like season one, I probably started that a couple of times over the years and season two, you know, I'll go back and watch some of my favorite episodes like the cave of two lovers or bitter work. Um, but by and large, there's a couple of episodes in here where it's been some time since I've seen it. So, and most of those are in season three, um, which is why I'm so excited if I can get to it anyway. Um, yeah, I, I like those characters just fine. They serve their narrative purpose in season two, but they don't really do a whole lot in season two. Um, they're mostly there just to make it so it's an even fight between Azula and Team Avatar. Um, or Boomerang Squad, or however you want to call it. Anyway, uh, they get the citizens out of Omashu, and Aang, uh, meets Boomy, and Boomy's like, Your earthbending teacher will be somebody who waits and listens before striking. Someone who has mastered neutral Jin." Um, and then they leave Omashu. Um, and there's a little side story with like a child and Pentapox and it's all hilarious or whatever. It's fine. Um, kind of glossing over that stuff. I got a lot of shit to talk about. And if I'm going to get it done in a reasonable amount of time, we got to kind of keep this ship rolling. Return to Amashi was a fine episode. Episode, I was going to say chapter. Episode four, The Swamp, is a weird one because it's never really explained they kind of do this thing where like the swamp is one tree right um and it's all connected just like like the aspen forest in colorado how it's all technically one organism depending on your definition and like all the roots are interconnected and stuff like that like it's on fucking pandora or whatever um but in terms of like the spiritual connection that swamp has i don't think we get an in show explanation for that um and we that's that's really going to come up again in a couple of episodes, and I will remember to talk about it then, so I'm not too concerned about it. Um, but I'll mention it here real quick. Um, the comic book graphic novels of Avatar The Last Airbender um, are plentiful and occur both within 
and following the events of the show. So if you're dying for more stories with these characters, there exist quite a few, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I don't know exactly how many, um, but more than I was expecting. And I believe, but I could be wrong about this, but I believe they are still making graphic novels about the Legend of Korra characters. Apparently it's pretty popular. Um, I do plan on getting my hands on all of these um, here pretty soon. Well, with, well, you know, maybe not for Christmas, but I think I'm going to start picking those up here pretty soon because I want to read them. But I also want to finish watching the show first, so I'm going to do that. Um, and then watch Korra, and then I'll probably get my hands on the graphic novels, because I'm fucking curious. Anyway, yeah, The Swamp is, is fascinating. Uh, we get our, our first moments of, uh, the teams being separated, uh, which, again, is fucking foreshadowing of what is a, a hard part of the series to watch, um, but we'll get to that. And everybody sees a vision, um, obviously Sokka sees UA. Uh, and he's still very sad about her death. Katara sees their mom and is sad about her death. And Aang sees Toph before we even know who Toph is. And then we meet the Swamp Benders and we get the classic line of pants are an illusion and so is death. Which is it's a great fucking line. Um, and Aang learns a little bit about the spiritual connection that the world has to its, to you know itself and each other and all that stuff. He never uses that power again in Season 2. However, we do see that power again in Season 2, but performed by Guru Patik and not Aang the, the Avatar. It seems like a kind of filler episode, but it also provides Aang some direction in terms of finding his fucking earthbending t-shirt. So it serves a purpose, and I appreciate that. Good job. Episode 5, Avatar Day. Probably one of the uh, easiest episodes to point at and go, this one might be filler. Not so sure about this one. It's got some great moments. It's got some hilarious stuff with like Aang and the other prisoners or, um, the whole trial was pretty funny and Zuko, or Zuko, Sokka being like, you know, my boomerang's gone because like the Rough Riders took it or whatever and he doesn't have an identity anymore and, um, and then we get some backstory on Kyoshi, um, who is I, I mentioned it a little bit before but Kiyoshi is fucking baller and right as I'm talking about Avatar extended universe media the Kiyoshi books I'm so excited to start reading I have the first one I haven't started reading yet um I do plan on audiobooking that I just don't know when the fuck that's gonna happen um the problem with doing one audiobook at a time and basically only have time to do one audiobook at a time is that there's so many fucking books that I want to read but it's going to be literal years before I get to the ones that I want to get to. You know, it's it's kind of a lot. Um, but I will I will read it someday. Um, simply because I want to read it. And I think that'd be a fun one to read as a thing. Anyway. Um, yes. <sighs> I'm getting distracted. But yeah. Um, you know, Avatar goes on trial for killing Chin the Conqueror. And, which is absolutely what Kyoshi did. Also, apparently with her Earth... The, the Wikipedia says officially that Kyoshi lived to be like 280-something years old um, because of her earthbending. And I'm like, how the fuck does that make sense? It would have made more sense for her to keep herself alive with waterbending. What the fuck did earthbending do to increase her immortality? But whatever. She lived for a very long time. 
Um, and it's because of stuff like that that makes Guru Patik more reasonable. If he was a personal friend of Monkey Yatso, he was, you know, he's at minimum like 120 plus years old. And he looks pretty good for that, to gotta be honest. But yeah, Avatar Day is is fine. Um, if it wasn't for the Kyoshi stuff, uh, I would probably rate this episode as filler. But I think because of that backstory and also like Aang's desire to to you know be a good role model, um, I thought that was a that was pretty good. So yeah, that that episode's fine. It gets passed. Episode 6, The Blind Bandit. Classic episode. The introduction of Toph, the whole wrestling thing. Um, that's pretty much all that happens in this episode as far as I'm concerned. It's it's excellent. Um, so I want to take... I mean, I love... Let's talk about Toph a little bit. And then I'm going to flip script and go talk about Zuko and Iroh for a bit more. Um, Toph is... I said it before. There's not a bad main character in this show. And Toph is phenomenal. She's such a foil to everybody else in the, in the, in the team. You know, she's hard-headed. She's incredibly capable. She comes into the team basically already mastered earthbending. Um, she's, she's stubborn. She's funny. She's whimsical. Um, she's loyal. She's, she's excellent. Um, and it is so rare for a show to introduce a new character and for them to fit so fucking seamlessly into the rest of the show. And if you're keeping track at home, that's Toph, Azula, Ty Lee, May, like all these people showed up in the in the first six episodes of season two, and it feels like they were there the entire time, and they fucking weren't. They show up in season two. It's almost to the point that you miss these characters in season one, even though they didn't matter to the story at that point. It's it's enviable. How good a job this show does bringing in new characters this point in the show. It's amazing. I absolutely adore it. Um, so yes, Toph's intro to the show is fantastic. Um, the the creation of the bounty hunters chasing Toph does one thing for the plot. And we'll get to that. It does one thing for the plot. Otherwise, it's completely pointless. Zuko and Ira at this point have been struggling to be on the road for a while, you know. Uh... Iroh finds the, the white jade bush and he drinks it into tea and he gets all poisoned and then they steal an ostrich horse and they're struggling to get by and they're poor and all that crap and um, Zuko determines in episode 6 that, you know, he has nothing to gain by traveling with his uncle and so he leaves him. Um, Iroh continues to follow Zuko um, but Zuko doesn't know it. And then we get the episode Zuko Alone which is predominantly focused on on Zuko, which is kind of nice, because up until this point, we haven't really gotten a Zuko-heavy episode. Um, and it's all about Zuko trying to figure out, you know, who the fuck he is. Um, and we also get some backstory on Zuko's family, which is also good. It's episodes like this that really build out the character. You know, there's a, there's a comparable episode to this in Young Justice that centers pretty much entirely on um, Vandal Savage. Uh, and it talks about his, like, 50,000 years of history and all that stuff and his family and his whole purpose and stuff like that. And Zuko here, you know, he's struggling to get by and he goes into an Earth Kingdom town and he meets this little boy and he tries to, you know, be a positive role model and then the little boy gets, like, arrested or something and then he firebends and everybody freaks out and tells him to go f fuck himself, you know. But the backstory is what's particularly interesting because we, for the, for the first time, 
we are introduced to Zuko's mom, whose name is Ursa. Um, and throughout that episode, we learn that Ozai basically connived against Iroh. Because uh, Iroh lost his son, Lu Ten, in the siege of Ba Sing Se. Um, and basically couldn't handle, from what we know at this point in the story, he couldn't handle doing the the siege anymore. And so he abandoned the siege and he came back as a, essentially a failure. Um, and Ozai was like, Iroh isn't strong enough to lead this country to Fire Lord Azulon, like his dad. Um, let me do it. Give me give me the, the stuff. And Azulon's like, you want me to betray my firstborn? Your punishment, you'll, you'll never, you know, fuck you. And um, while Azula, uh, Azula comes into Zuko's room later and says that Azulon had said for Ozai to kill Zuko to lose his firstborn so he knows the pain. It's painted like Azula is bullshitting Zuko and just making up some garbage. Um, that is, in fact, not the case. That's exactly what was going to happen. Azula was giving it to Zuko straight then. Of course, the way it's played off, it makes it seem like like she's lying. But that's exactly what Ozai was about to do. Ozai was about to completely murder Zuko um, in order to... Because that's what the Fire Lord wanted. Ursa, the mom... Wasn't having it. So she worked with Ozai to kill Azulon. And then she got pegged for it. So she had to go away. And despite what this show implies, according to the graphic novels, Ursa does not die. Instead, she goes and basically gets a new face. I don't want I don't know all the details, but Ursa goes and gets a new face, and with the new face. She loses her memories. And then she goes off and finds a new person, a former lover of hers, um, where she was born. They fall in love, get married, and have a bunch more kids. And then after the events of the show, when Zuko becomes the Fire Lord, he tracks down his original mother. She gets her old face back. She basically comes back to the Fire Kingdom and becomes like the queen mother. Um, And Zuko gets his mom back. So Ursa's not dead, and she does come back canonically in the graphic novels. I just want to point that out. This show would have you believe that she fucking beefs it, but that's not the case. She's she's still alive and all that stuff. At least at this point. I think there's something in season three where they, like... I think one of the biggest loose threads at the end of season three was what happened to Zuko's mom. Um, which is why one of the graphic novels is called The Search. Because it's The Search for Zuko's mom. Um, I do like Zuko alone. Because of all of those reasons I just said and all of the story, it, it kind of builds up for us. Good stuff. The chase serves two purposes. One, it introduces the trio of Azula, Tylee, and Mei chasing the Avatar as a threat. And two, it ingratiates Toph into the grander team Avatar situation. Of course, it's portrayed through the, the framework of complete and utter exhaustion. Um, that's pretty much what happens. It's literally, the title of the episode is what happens in this episode. The kids are chased across a long distance, and they, they do some, they do some fit, fat fighting. Uh, there's a great moment at the end of the episode, however, when everybody teams up against Azula, and, uh, fucking Azula pegs Iroh with, uh, with an attack, um, and he, you know, he goes down, and Zuko's, understandably, quite upset. Because Iroh's the best, and if Iroh gets hurt, well, then what what does anybody have to live for? Because uh, Iroh's just the best. And, um, it's, you know, it's it's very sad. Iroh's fine, by the way, I just want to... 
just to reemphasize that in case anybody's worried, but Iroh is completely fine. Um, and then they, then Team Avatar just kind of leaves. Zuko and Iroh just to chill there. Um, and it's, uh, it's, I like to also think of that as, as, like, there's a little bit more Zuko Team Avatar interactions, uh, preluding Zuko joining Team Avatar, uh, in season three, but it's nice to, Kind of see what's what's the, the the foundation for this kind of going down. Also, don't you hurt Iroh. He's my beautiful B-boy. Episode 9, Bitter Work. I always thought this was episode 10, but I was wrong. It's episode 9. I love Bitter Work. It's not a perfect episode, but I do love it. And the reason I love it is because I am an absolute sucker for training montages. In anything. Any movie or show that does a training montage, I fucking, I'm, I'll eat that shit up. And Aang learning how to be an earthbender is an excellent one. Not only does he actually learn to earthbend in this episode, which makes it a successful training montage, um, but we get to see his struggles and the thought process and kind of how that whole thing works and his relationship with Toph and Katara. And then Sokka goes on this great little journey where he meets uh, the greatest pet ever, which is Fufu Cuddly Poops. Um... And if you say that name isn't phenomenal, then I will say you're a liar. Because his name is fucking Foo Foo Cuddly Poops. It's almost, it's almost as good as Sparky Sparky Boom Man, but um, Foo Foo Cuddly Poops is two thumbs up. Um, it's just a great fucking episode. And on the flip side, we get Zuko trying to learn how to lightning bend. But he can't do it. Not because he's a bad firebender. Far from it. Zuko's an incredible firebender. Uh, but he's so churned up inside, you know, with 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 his self identity and his his perceived destiny and what he wants to out of life, and he doesn't fucking know. He has no clue, and because of that inner conflict, he can't. He's not at peace enough with himself in order to separate the energies in order to create lightning. Um, I also want to give this episode credit for being the first episode. I feel like that teaches uh, like a move that supposedly does something that was taught well enough that you could replicate it at home. And that is the the, the deflection of lightning, which is you take your, your two fingers and you intercept the lightning bolt with one hand. Then you take your other hand, you bring it up to your hand that's extended. You draw your other two fingers down your arm, down into the stomach, up the other side, and then out the tips of your fingers by extending your arm. The lightning redirection move is the only fucking move out of Avatar The Last Airbender I feel like people learn. Um, and out of all the ones, since we don't have, like, elemental abilities, I feel like even, even theoretically being able to redirect lightning because of the energy that flows in your body is a pretty good one. Um... And it's, it's pretty excellent. I also love all of Iroh's talk about the the four elements and the four nations. Um, because, A, it's just more world-building information for us. But Iroh is absolutely right. In order to achieve balance and harmony, you have to understand the whole picture. And all parts of, that feed into it. Um, that's, that's how you achieve things like this. Um... And while viewers of this show will not be able to, you know, control water or shoot fire from your hands or fly with airbending, 
what you can take from this show is all of that balance and harmony thought. All of that, like, inner peace, meditation, um, and even with the later episodes, like, the chakras and the flow of energy and chi and all that crap, that is all legitimate things that you could practice and study and pursue. Those are things you can do. Um, and, I mean, I'm just speaking from my experience um, with with meditation and all of those schools of thought. Um, there's, there's something there. I mean, at the very least, at the very least, if you don't believe in the flow of energy and the, the, the beings of chakras and stuff like that, actually being part of your, your makeup, that's fine. But what it helps you, helps me do at least is like kind of get your thoughts in order. You know, it provides structure to your, your, your mental faculties um, and I challenge anybody to go through some like proper teachings in this, like find like a meditation studio or, um, a, uh, a, like a dojo or something like that and like go with, go to somebody who knows what they're doing, have them walk you through it. You're going to feel pretty fucking peaceful by the end of that shit. You know, it's. It's it it'll it I I love it I think it works um and it's all part of the balance you know it's you've got to do a whole mess of things in order to be a balanced individual you know if you don't get enough sleep you're gonna be get fucked if you don't eat enough food you're gonna be fucked if you don't eat enough of the right food you're gonna be fucked if you don't take care of yourself mentally and emotionally you're gonna be fucked um. And it all needs to work in concert together, and it all needs to be part of a grander whole. Um, and all that stuff is showcased really well in this show, and I think that's great. It's good fucking stuff. I'm talking about episodes 10 and 11 tied together, because I believe when they aired, they were tied together. I could be wrong, but I'm Pretty sure they're tied together. But let's talk about episode 10 first, which I like to refer to the next five episodes as the episodes I tried to forget about. Not because they're bad, far from it. They're so good that they hurt me emotionally when I was a child, and I thought I wasn't going to be able to get through them again this time. Upon reviewing, these episodes are not nearly as bad as my memory was of it. Don't get me wrong, it's still tremendously sad what happens in these episodes, but they're not as bad as what I thought they were going to be, especially because the situation resolves itself in six episodes, but that's fine. So they're, they're doing mini vacations, which is bizarre to do in the middle of this fucking season, but they needed a catalyst for them to go to this fucking library. And I'm going to kind of yada yada past some stuff. And they go to Wan Shitan's library. He, he knows 10,000 things. Sokka learns about the eclipse coming to defeat the Fire Nation, blah, 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 blah. And the, the key thing that happens in this episode, besides the discovery of the eclipse, is the capturing of Appa, which is the moment that made me so sad. Because it's tremendously sad. Also, it completely changes the dynamic of the show. They no longer have an easy mode of transportation with the kidnapping of Appa. Not only is he a loyal and key member of the team, he is their mode of transportation. And all of a sudden, 
everything shifts with that one fucking change. It's brilliant writing. You know, what happens if we take Appa out of the picture? How do they get by? And the answer to that question is not well. They don't, they don't, they don't get by well. Uh, they, they kind of struggle. Um, and that is excellent because through struggle and challenges comes strength and victory, you know? Um, but Aang is, Aang's a fucking riddled with emotions. You know, he doesn't really know what's going on. Um, it is, it's great. I love it. Uh, excuse me. Um, God damn. Appa's gone. And Toph's really sad uh, because of it's the, you know, she tried to protect Appa, but she couldn't do anything because she had to save the library from sinking and she couldn't see because of the sand and all that stuff and she was doing her best. But in the end, Appa gets kidnapped. But don't worry, we figure out what happened to Appa in a couple of episodes. The kids get out of the library and obviously they're stuck in the middle of the desert with nowhere to go. And so Katara needs to be the one to actually like kind of keep everybody together and get them out of the fucking desert. Uh, and through some, some trials and tribulations, they uh, eventually do make it out of the desert. Smash cut back to uh, Zuko and Iroh. They are also meandering on their way through. They've reunited um, and they need some help. And so they find their way to this oasis town and uh, Iroh sees a man sitting at a pie show table. And through some some clever tile placement, he reveals himself to be a member of the Order of the White Lotus. Um, and they get some help. Um, basically, the White Lotus organization arranges for Iroh and Zuko to be snuck into Bossing Se as refugees. Um, just like any other Earth Kingdom refugee. Uh, which is some brilliant fucking sneakiness. Um, also, hey, remember those Toph-based bounty hunters? Well, they show up again. And they go, hey, look, Zuko and Iroh are here. Maybe we can capture them and get some money. And then they fail to do that. And they're like, fuck it. Let's just go after Toph again. Let's just keep on looking for the girl. And that's basically what happens. Aang is naturally distraught that Appa is gone. And so was I when I was a kid when I first saw this. It broke me. It absolutely broke me. It broke me to the point where every time I thought of season two, all I can think of was like that bundle of sad memories associated with this, with this event. But after... After the desert, Appa's lack of presence here in the show is, um, it's a part of it, but they kind of move past it pretty quickly. That being said, Aang's feelings through, through Appa's uh, loss are still felt pretty keenly in the next episode. So let's fucking just get into that. So on Netflix, this is a, a two-parter. They've called it The Secret of the Fire Nation. When I watched this show, it was called The Serpent's Pass and The Drill, is what these parts were called. They were two separate episodes. Um, when I was watching it, back when I was a kid. Um, but anyway, now it's called The Secret of the Fire Nation. But the first part of it is The Serpent's Pass bit. And when they go to get on a ferry... They meet some fellow refugees um, who, if you were paying attention, you actually saw earlier in the show. Um, earlier in the show, when and Zuko's alone, he th uh, thinks about like attacking a family to get their food because he was starving. And he sees that the woman is pregnant, and so he doesn't attack them. It's the same fucking family. Fucking need, isn't it? Anyway. Uh, 
they meet that family and they go to the port city uh, to to go across. And the only thing that happens in the port city that matters is that they run into Suki again, whom I absolutely love. Suki's great. And uh, they have to take the Serpent's Pass, which apparently is a dangerous route. Um, and Suki goes, you know, the Fire Nation on the, other, on the eastern shores are working on something big. Nobody really knows what it is, but they're working on something big. Um, and Sokka is being incredibly overprotective and mansplaining at every possible moment. Now, in Sokka's defense, this is, you know, I don't want to condone his actions because he's overprotective and he's mansplaining, both of which are bad. However, his last girlfriend died in his arms and he couldn't do anything to stop it. And so he's, he's a little, he's a little gun shy about danger. So I get it and I can appreciate that. And he does learn to chill by the end of the episode, but it takes him a minute and that's fine in my opinion. He's young. He got burned. It makes sense to me. Um, that the, the Sakasuki relationship, besides the fact that their names are too similar for my liking, but that's fine. Um, is superb. Much like how there isn't a bad character in the show, I don't think there's a bad relationship in this show. And as far as I'm concerned, like, you know, ships, right? Um, which is an internet term to refer to people uh, implying a romantic relationship between any two or plus characters in anything. Um, the canonical relationships generated by this show have my approval. I think they're all phenomenal. Aang and Katara just makes total sense. Like, fucking Harry and Ginny do not make sense. Harry and Hermione make way more sense. But that's... That's just my cross I'm willing to die on, um, as far as that's con that's concerned. But no, I wouldn't change anything about the canonical relationships in this show. Um, I think they all serve a, a incredible purpose and I think they're all done very, very well. So thumbs up on all of that stuff. Anyway, they get across Serpent's Pass and the woman gives birth and they give the, the child the name Hope and Aang regains his humanity. He's like, I got to go get up. I'll see you guys in the city. And they're like, okay, bye. And he flies off. And as he flies off, he sees the fucking drill and he's like, ah, oh, shit. And so he reconvenes and now we're in the next episode of the drill and he reconvenes and he's like, Guys, there's they're they're drilling through the wall. It's bad. And who's leading the drill? But Azula and her and her and her pals, her Fire Nation pals and stuff like that. And they go to the wall, and the general's like, "We got this under control." And then he doesn't. He's like, "Please help us." And uh, they go into the drill, and there's a lot of cutting of beams and stuff like that. And then Aang goes up top, and he fights real good. And Katara and Toph hold up some slurry, and they blow up the drill. Um, and it's all really cool and it's all very well done and it's a, uh, it's super nifty and they, they save bossing say from being invaded by the fire nation and Zula is defeated and all that crap. Great fucking stuff. I know I just sprinted past that, but it's, it's really good. And, um, we got a lot more ground to cover because we're about to talk about another fucking excellent episode. City of Walls and Secrets is great because it starts the secret police and brainwashing plot. Because it's, they go into Bossing Say and there, there's this woman and her name's Judy. And everything's so nice and happy in Bossing Say. And Judy never blinks. And they try to figure out information about the war and why nobody's talking about it. And it all seems really weird and suspect. 
And now they're being watched all the time, and they can't leave their house without Judy as their chaperone because it'd be it, she'd be a bad host and all that stuff. And it's it's unnerving. It's creepy, isn't it? But I fucking love it because it introduces a whole other element where now the kids have to fight against like the system and against adults because they're kids and they don't know anything and they're not trusted to do anything and you gotta do what the adults tell you because fuck you and as a child you're just irate at all of this stuff because it plays on like the whole like classic trope of like oh the adults are are useless um but in this case it's not that the adults are useless it's that the adults are puppet mastering fucking everything Primarily looking at Longfang, who I'd completely forgotten about before rewatching the show. I will be completely honest with you. I love him as a as a villain, but you gotta admit he's pretty ineffective. He doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, he enters and leaves the show so fucking quickly. He probably had whiplash from the experience. Um, but he is beautifully performed by Clancy Brown. So cheers to Clancy Brown. If you don't know who that is, look it up. It was also Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob SquarePants. You're welcome. Um, so I love the brainwashing and I love the the propaganda and the the uh, fucking secret police, all that fucking shit. I love it. I think it's great. Um, and they're trying to meet the Earth King so they can tell him all about the, the the invasion, but it's just not fucking happening. Meanwhile, Zuko and Iroh run into Jet. Remember Jet? Hey. Hey, y'all remember Jet? Well, Jet's back. And he's there with Smeller being Long Shadow because the team didn't want to animate all the Freedom Fighters. What happened to the Freedom Fighters? I think we run into a couple of them again later, but don't quote me on that. I want to say Pipsqueak and the Duke show up for the invasion of Black Sun, but I could be tremendously wrong. Um, anyway, he's around. And he's like, we're, we're turning over New Leaf. We're going to Bossing Say. And he gets real suspicious about Zuko and Iroh because Iroh drinks some hot tea. And he's like, he he did it himself. Those guys are firebenders. Which is like, dun, 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 for some reason. But why would you care, Jet? I mean, I know you don't like firebenders, but they're just fucking living their life. They can't help what they were born as. Now you're just being racist. Now you're just being racist. Jet, looking at you. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that, that's all going on. And... Iron and Zuko eventually get in and uh, they start working for a tea shop. Which, hey, hey, hey. Get it? Because Ira likes tea. I also worked in a tea shop. Um, and much like as I was talking earlier about the, the, the meditation and the spirituality all being like things you can legitimately practice. I love focusing those energies and that kind of mentality through tea culture. Because... You can argue the same thing for coffee, but I feel like the effects of coffee are too strong to really allow for that kind of peaceful serenity that tea can provide. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tea rant because, I mean, this is I I I feel like I've always been a fan of bit been a big fan of tea throughout my life, but I'm almost positive that is not the case. Um, I will say, however, that one of the catalysts for me enjoying tea is undoubtedly this fucking show when it first came out without a doubt because i loved iroh so goddamn much and iroh drank tea and so my child brain immediately went well if i drink tea i will be more like iroh um and striving to be like iroh is a worthy goal 
because he is absolutely somebody that should be em- em- emulated, emulated, idolized, something along those lines. He's wise, he's powerful, he's together, he's on the side of the angels, and he drinks tea. So that's where my childhood brain went. Anyway, tea, um, proper tea from the actual tea plant, Camellia sinensis. Um, and yes, if it is an actual tea, pretty much all tea comes from one plant. Unless it's a different kind of tea. There is the um, African red bush tea, known as rooibos, or rubus, or rooibos, however you want to pronounce it. It is correctly pronounced rooibos. R-O-O-I-B-U-S. Rooibos. Um, which is non-caffeinated, but is also an excellent tea. Um, and then obviously, uh, different cultures around the world will steep different plants for different reasons. Um, I have had, gosh, can't remember the name of it now. I think I flew out of like a, like an Arizona airport or like a Phoenix airport at one point. And there was a tea that the, um, the Navajo people drank on sale at one of the gift shops and I did try that and it's basically just like kind of grassy but for the sake of this we're talking about true fucking tea Camellia sinensis all tea comes from that white green oolong black however you want to describe it it all comes from the same plant and the type of tea is dependent upon the oxidation of the tea leaf black tea is a hundred percent oxidized um and has been argued to contain more caffeine than the other tea variants. The amount of caffeine difference between black and green is negligible at best. Um, So if somebody comes at you and says, oh, you know, green tea doesn't have as much caffeine as black tea, that is technically true, but it's it's like saying, oh, this phone has 100% battery life and this one has 80% battery life. They both have a still a pretty good fucking full battery um, and it's probably going to get you through the day, but... There is a minor difference. Um, It really boils down to what you want your tea to taste like. And the different oxidation levels, especially when you get into oolong, which is like crazy levels of oxidation. Like, because the thing with black tea is that it's usually 100% oxidized. Green tea is usually steamed uh, as soon as the leaf is picked. uh, So it maintains that kind of freshness. So if if you wanted to experience what tea really tastes like when it comes off the bush and into a cup, green tea is where you want to go. Um, But oolongs are are basically that that breath between 0 and 100 from green to black tea. And it can fall anywhere within that span in order to get that. Um, The the current method for how to make white tea is escaping me. uh, And I can't quite recall. Um, But if you were to ask me what my favorite tea is... Exploring the world of oolong is is pretty fucking phenomenal. And then, of course, there's flavorings. Earl Grey. Jasmine is one of my consistent favorites. Currently, I am drinking... What am I drinking? Earl Grey. Uh, which is flavored with bergamot oil, which is a member of the citrus family. And the last tea fact I will share, um, before I loop this back into what the fuck I was originally talking about, is that bergamot oil will actually cause uh, muscular um, dystrophy... Uh, or atrophy, rather, if you consume enough of it. Granted, that enough of it is like a gallon of the stuff all at once. So, you're fine drinking Earl Grey tea. It's not... It has to happen, like, all at once. 
and it needs to be a fucking lot of it. Um, but that's something to know, just in case you're wondering. Um, but anyway, focusing that kind of mental and spiritual energy through the, the drinking of tea, I think is incredibly helpful because associating a practice with something physical, like the consumption of tea helps keep everything together and it you can kind of classically condition yourself to when hey i have a cup of tea in my hands and you get that the warmth of the mug and the flavor of the drink itself and if you train yourself to associate tea with that kind of level of mental peace then you can achieve it faster if that makes sense Kind of like how when you turn your lights off and you put your head on the pillow and you close your eyes, you don't lay in bed staring at your phone. You know, you got to associate things with the activity. If, you, if you're trying to sleep more consistently, as I punch my desk, um, then you want to not do phone internet crap in your bed. Because the bed is for you to sleep, you know? So when you turn all your lights off and you're ready to zonk out, you just got to stick to that and you got to fucking chill and you got to quiet your mind and you got to go to bed, you know, and you can do the exact same thing with tea. It's very, very cool. And it's very, very fun. And I'm a big fan of it. Um, I completely lost track of which episode we were talking about. I'm pretty sure it was episode 13. Let's move on to the next. Tales of Bossing Say. I believe... Because of budget things, this is actually a, um, I don't want to say it's a filler episode, but essentially what happened when this season and season three were being made, they didn't have enough money to do, like, enough full episodes. Um, and so Tales of Bossing Say and the Ember Island Players, I believe, um, are those episodes that were, like, we can't do a foolish episode, so we gotta we gotta keep the animations short and simple. Uh, and so what they did is they told a series of short stories in the Tales of Bossing Say. And this episode is the other episode. Um, there may be another one coming up here pretty soon, but there this is the other episode that I consider to be perfect um, because this is also the first episode. And Avatar the Last Airbender, and possibly the last, don't quote me on that, to make me cry. And if you've seen this episode, you know exactly why. But we'll get to that. The first short story that this episode had is with the tale of Toph and Katara, where they basically go to uh, a beauty salon, and they talk about Toph's perception of beauty and how it doesn't matter because she can't see. Um, and Katara's like, I think you're really pretty, and it's a very sweet moment. That's what happens there. The next one is the tale of... I think this is out of order, actually. Um, but I could be wrong. I'll just talk... I'm just going to talk about it in the order that it's listed on the fucking Wikipedia page. Um, the The next one is the tale of Iroh, um, according to this. I don't think that's right, but it's on here, so I'm going to trust it. Um, I swear Iroh shows up later, but maybe not. Anyway, Iroh uh, goes about his day and he picks up like a picnic basket and he sees a crying child and he sings a song for the crying child and he, he sees some kid playing soccer and teaches him a lesson about, you know, apologizing and then the guy turns out to be huge and they all fucking beat, run for it and Iroh runs into an alley and he's almost getting mugged and he 
mocks the mugger for his weak stance and he knocks him on his ass and then teaches him how to stand properly and drinks tea with him and has this, this, this really sweet moment and the guy's like, this is great. No one's ever believed in me before. And that's when the tears start to fall for me because I'm like, that's just such a sweet moment. And then Iroh climbs that fucking hill and he, he lays out the picnic basket and he puts up a picture of Lutan, his son, there and he lights some incense and he sings leaves from a vine falling so slow and he cries because it's the anniversary of his son's death. And at this point, I too am crying. Actual tears fell off my face when I watched this a, a mere couple of hours ago and I challenge anybody to watch this and not cry. It is incredibly emotionally uh, potent and made... All the more fuck youable because Mako, the voice actor for Iroh, died in 2006 um, from cancer, and so that story was dedicated to him in his in his honor. And God damn, it's just it's it's really fucking good. And in case you're wondering, because I wondered about this too, yes. Mako was able to finish recording all of the lines for Iroh in season two, and it's not until season three when he is replaced by Greg Baldwin. I just want to clarify that. Good? Cool. The next one is The Tale of Aang, where he makes a zoo, um, and it's very cute. Uh, the next one is The Tale of Sokka, and he does the haiku thing, and that's all fine. The next one of importance for me is The Tale of Zuko, when he goes on a date with this lovely girl named Jin. And it's awkward, you know, and Zuko doesn't know how to do the date stuff. And um, then he turns out to be really sweet because he lights a bunch of lanterns and crap and she loves it. And uh, then they kiss and Zuko basically runs away because it's complicated and he's scared and he doesn't know how to handle his feelings. And I was like, so how's your date? And Zuko goes, it was nice. And it's very sweet and I love it. Um, and then there's the tale of Momo, which is awesome because we get hints of what the fuck's happening with Appa. Um, and it's also just a, a wonderful example of like show don't tell. Um, uh, it's because, you know, obviously Momo can't talk, but it's still great storytelling um, to do that fucking thing and see the Appa footprint and like Momo like rubbing his face on Appa's hair and he clearly misses his big buddy and all that stuff. It's, it's very nice. I like that one a lot. And that's how that episode ends. But I do consider this episode to be perfect. Um, And I just read this on the Wikipedia page that I wanted to mention. And this is something I did notice when I was watching it. So when they're doing the the soccer and Iris talking um, to those kids, I thought his voice sounded a little bit off. And that's because it does. That is the first time that Greg Baldwin shows up to do the voice of Zuko. Or not Zuko. Of Iroh. Um, in a... Uh, in the in the show i'm guessing that uh they needed like to do like a a re-record or something like that um and at that point mako was too sick to do it so greg stepped in um but i i that I, I did not know that so there you go fun fact i'm closing wikipedia because i don't want it to sway my opinions on anything let's talk about the next episode Episode 15, Appa's Lost Days. We basically figure out what the fuck happened to Appa from the moment he gets kidnapped all the way to leaving the footprint in Bossing Say. And this is another great episode of Show Don't Tell because obviously Appa can't talk. However, you can see through his actions and his, you know, 
the events he goes through, that he goes through some shit. Not only is he kidnapped by the Sandbenders and then sold to the fucking circus where he gets a fear of fire, but like he's hungry and he's starving and he's trying to survive and he's getting grungier and dirtier over the whole time and then he fights this giant like thistleback boar um, and he's just covered in quills and then the Kyoshi Warriors find him and they clean him up and they, they he gets a little bit of trust back and then Azula shows up and he, has, he gets driven off by fire and stuff like that and he goes back to the Eastern Air Temple where he meets Guru Patik uh, ahead of time, right? And the guru is like, ooh, I, you know, where the fuck's going on here? And uh, Appa is like all growly and stuff and Guru Pachik uses the energy in Appa to locate where the fuck Aang is um, and he gives, uh, you know, there's a, a note for Aang on Appa's horn and Appa flies to Bossing Say and he gets let off course by fucking Longfang um, who, despite his his stuff in this episode, Still a pretty ineffective villain, just throwing it out there. Doesn't really do much. That's fun. Um, and then he get and he takes Appa, um, which is hilarious to me that they like they show that he gets taken, and then like next thing we see Appa, he's like in chains. How the fuck did he pull that off? You gotta wonder, right? Like, how did he pull that off? We don't know. It just happens, and it happens off screen. So fuck you for wondering about it. Um, great fucking episode. Uh, it's 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 a testament to how good the show is that they can paint such incredible stories without the use of words. Good stuff. Also, I want to I want to point this out because some of these episodes have been incredibly dark and incredibly serious, especially considering that it's a kids show on Nickelodeon. That's one of the many reasons why this show resonated because it was like I don't know if. I, I love this show. I consider this show to be one of the best animated shows out there. I don't know to what extent the creators of this show were able to achieve their vision of what they wanted this show to be. But I have to assume this is pretty fucking close. Because it feels like they were able to get a lot of liberties with this show. Um, and I think that is one of the many reasons why the show endures. Um, and when, and it just goes to show that if you do something right, the fans will love you forever. And if you do something wrong, you end up like Game of Thrones. Episode 16, Lake Lao Guy, or as I like to call it, the beginning of the end. Because these, these next four episodes are all fairly closely tied together. Um... So I'm just going to kind of talk about them all at once. Um, so we'll talk about episode 16, Lake Laga. It's not episode 16. It is it is on Netflix, but in reality, I think it's episode... I want to say it's 18. I think it's episode 18. Um, Jet shows up, and he's been brainwashed by the Daily as they're trying to hang uh, Oppo wanted posters all over the city of Bossing Say. Um... And the kids are out of control, you know, because Judy is no longer trusted, if they ever trusted her at all. And uh, Jet takes them to Lake Loud Guy, and they sneak under uh, to find Appa and to, to rescue him. Meanwhile, Iroh and Zuko have been working at a tea shop for a while, and they've been offered uh, their own tea shop up in the middle ring by some rich, affluent Earth, Earth Kingdom noble. And obviously they accept and Zuko discovers that uh, Aang's in the city and he's lost his bison. And so he 
plots to get to Appa first for some reason. Uh, and we'll get to that back to that in a second. Um, but the kids head on down uh, into the Daily headquarters. And Jet's like, I think there's a chamber up ahead that's big enough to fit Appa, and it's full of Daily agents. Um, and Long, Long Fang's like, you are now enemies of the state. Men, arrest them. And they fight, and Longshadow runs away, and uh, Aang and Jet pursue him. And then he brainwashes Jet to attack Aang, and uh, Aang is able to break through br- Jet's brainwashing, and he Jet turns on Long Fang, and Long Fang all but fucking kills him. Um, now, this is something that could be retconned in the comic books, but I do believe that Jet canonically dies um, in that in that scene uh, for many reasons. One, we never see Jet again in the process of the show. Um, and the way it's all framed with Toph being like, he's lying. Um, and Smeller B just sobbing her eyes out. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to assume that Jet kicks the bucket then. Zuko gets to Appa. And he's there. And Iroh shows up. And Iroh's like, what are you going to do with this bison? And Zuko's like, first I got to get him out of here. And then Iroh goes, and then what? You never think these things through. And he fucking yells at him, gives him some hard truths. Truths that Iroh has been laying the foundations of for episodes upon episodes. You know, talking about like, is it your destiny or is it a destiny that somebody has thrust upon you? Um, and he's like, stop it, uncle. I know what I'm doing. I'm begging you, Prince Zuko. Um, who are you? And what do you want? It's fucking, it's great. It's amazing. I love it. And he lets Appa go. And Appa comes back and they're all reunited and it's really great and adorable. And then Zuko goes through some shit and the next episode episode i'm gonna call it episode 19 because fuck you netflix for changing it episode 19 the earth king um let's continue so zuko goes through his metamorphosis and he's you know the, the decision he made in the cave is so counter to his personal perception of himself that his body doesn't know how to deal with these new conflicting emotions um and there's a great uh, scene of imagery when he's the fire lord and he's got these dragons talking to them which again is foreshadowing for the dragons we meet later on but that's fine um uh and one is azula's voice and one is iroh's voice and i thought that was great um and it also shows that azula also doesn't know what the fuck happened to their mom or at least no i take that back because it's not actually voiced by azula it's just voiced by the person who plays azula but it's azula's voice in zuko's head um, but the dragon goes like sleep just like mother. So Zuko doesn't know, which makes sense canonically at this point for him to not know what happened to his mom. But we all know that his mom's actually alive. She just has a different face and lost her memories or whatever the fuck happened. Um, and when he wakes up, he's like happy and he's happy is basically what happens when he wakes up. And I was like, you seem different today. It's a new day, uncle. I, I'm just so thrilled to be here. Golly gee, it's fucking phenomenal. Um, and I love sweet, innocent Zuko. Uh, however, that change of heart does not last long. But don't worry. Zuko will go through change, changes of hearts. Uh, like fucking flipping a coin here pretty soon. Uh, so that all happens. Uh, meanwhile, Team Avatar is breaking into the, the fucking Earth King's palace in order to tell him that the war is real. Uh, and through a couple of different instances, he's able to, they're able to convince the king that the war is real. And the king arrests Long Fang for lying to him. Um, and he's like, well, what do we do? And Sokka's like, well, we got to fight him on the on the, the eclipse. And he's like, you got my support. And so they start making plans and assembling the generals and all that stuff. And um, Meanwhile, they get some letters from, from various people. 
uh, Toph gets a letter that her mom's in the city and that she wants Toph to come home. And Aang gets the letter from the guru to go to the Eastern Air Temple to learn how to master the Avatar State. And Katara and Sokka get a, uh, a oh, like a military-coded message uh, about the, the waterbenders at the, the thing of, like, Half Moon Bay or whatever the fuck. Um, and they know their dad's there. And so they decide, it's like, well, I mean, we got some shit to do. I think we got to split up, you know, and go take care of some things as separate entities, which is a fun story element. So Toph goes off to meet with her mom and she goes to this house and wouldn't you know it? She's, her mom's not there, but it's the fucking bounty hunters from like 15 episodes ago. Hey, remember them? Yeah, they've kidnapped, they, they got her back. They put him in her metal box and they're going to truck her ass home. Uh, we'll get to, back to that in a second. And goes off to the Eastern Air Temple to meet Guru Patik, who, with his special concoction of uh, onion and banana juice. Onion and banana juice. Um, is that a thing? Uh, so it's in the Avatar Wiki. Um, so there's a thing on here called Indian Food Planet. Unlock the chakras with onion and banana juice. Um... Do, 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 do. What's what's their little blurb here? This recipe is neither too bad nor tastes super delicious, but it has strong reasons to con uh, but it has strong reason to convey you to try once, for for try for you to uh, what the fuck? Sorry, this sentence is not grammatically written correctly. This recipe is neither too bad nor tastes super delicious, but it has strong reason to convey to you for try once. Besides. The taste of the juice, it has many health benefits. We hardly get raw onion in our diet. By adding some bananas, we get some fiber, potassium, and antioxidants. So let's, so let's make it happen. Well, you don't really need... Also, this person is adding honey and water, which um, I'm sure will take some of the sting out of it. But uh, I gotta be honest, if you've never taken a bite of like, a raw onion... I'm just going to tell you that this uh, this particular cocktail is probably not going to cut it. But I don't think it actually has any legitimate basis in history. Um, oh, here we go. The onion and banana juice was based on what a friend of one of the creators was eating at a yoga retreat. Interesting. Real-world adaptation of this beverage is shown in a recipe from Avatar Last Airbender Cookbook official recipes from the Four Nations, uh, which I think just came out. Yeah, November 23rd, 2021. It, like, just came out. Um, I need that cookbook in my life. I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need to get a copy of that. I might wait till after Christmas to see if, uh, see if it comes in <laughs> as a gift to me, but I need that, uh, that thing. What other, what other recipes are here? Momo's moon peaches, Monkey Yatsu's fruit pies, Guru Pachik's onion and banana juice. There you go. Water Tribe, we got Sokka salmon jerky, Grand Grand smoke Arctic hen legs, Foggy Swamp chicken, um, Five Flavors soup, UA's moon cake, Spirit Oasis tea. Ooh. You know what? I'm going to look I'm gonna look that recipe up real quick. We were just talking about tea. What do you have for Spirit Oasis tea? Um, let's find out. Uh, recipe. I'm just gonna keep this episode a million years old. Um, 
Oh, I can't find it. It looks like I'll have to buy this fucking book. That interesting. All right. Earth Kingdom has a lot. Uh, Beifong Beef, Uncle Iroh's Juke. Uh, that weird soup that he makes. Uh, it's, I think it's just, yeah, it's rice porridge, basically. Um, that's, that's all it is. Uh, pretty fun, though. Kyoshi Island stuffed apple donuts. Hell yeah. Avatar Day unfried dough. That's awesome. Cactus juice. It's the quenchiest. The Jasmine Dragon Tea Shop. Hell yes. There's a bunch of tea in here. Yes. I need this book. Um, that is, that is awesome. Uh, the book initially included dishes to, that would showcase a stronger link to Korra's lifetime, but were taken out as the focus was supposed to be on Aang's era. There you go. Roku-style flaming hot chicken skewers. The, the Some called Firebending Masters and Azula's Lightning, uh, which sound like cocktails to me. Um, and then Flaming Fire Flakes is in here as well. So that's all fun. Um, God, that's awesome. But yeah, they convinced the Earth King and uh, Azula and her compatriots had taken the clothing of some of the Kyoshi Warriors, which seems pretty fucking dire. I'm pretty sure some of those Kyoshi Warriors probably died in order for their for their clothes to get uh get co-opted by Azula and friends. So, which is pretty unfortunate. Uh, Suki, thankfully, is not one of them. So Suki's fine. And we get into the the final two-parter of Avatar The Last Airbender Season 2, which in this uh, is called The Guru and The Crossroads of Destiny, which is a great fucking name. Let's talk about the Guru. We'll start with Aang's story first. He flies off to the Eastern uh, Air Temple. And just to build off of all that stuff I said about spirituality and all that stuff, the con the conversation around the chakras and the unlocking of the chakras is superb. It's simply wonderful. I don't know how much basis it has in actual Eastern practice, but it seems pretty good to me. So that's what I'll say about that. I think it's great. Um, anyway, you slice it. And one of the things I love is the attention to detail of um, Aang's hand positions for the unlocking of various chakras. If you look, his hands take a different shape for each chakra. Um, and it's kind of fun to try and, and mimic those at home. Uh, just to put your hands in, in their relative state shapes and, you know, to think about it. Um, I loved that whole fucking scene. Um, and this is one of those reasons why I said before that in order to really experience this world, um, in my opinion, uh, maybe not correctly, but an ideal sort of situation is to find somebody to kind of walk you through it. Um, cause you can learn a lot on your own, but few things can, can replace a true like mentor master sort of, sort of idea. Um, and they're out there. You just need to find them. Uh, and they're probably a lot closer than you think because people practice this all over the world every day and they live everywhere. So you just gotta, just gotta look it up and you'll probably figure it out. So, and, uh, those, those sorts of things are, anybody can do it. You just gotta have the discipline and the practice and to get it done. Um, and I love Guru Patik and I love that whole thing. Um, and then I love the, why would I choose cosmic energy over Katara? Um, that makes a lot of sense. And he gets a, uh, a star Wars like vision that Katara's in danger. And he's like, what's really interesting is that he sees, he sees Katara's in chains 
And she's not in chains. She's in a crystal prison. So, it's interesting that he doesn't see Katara actually, or in her actual place of danger. He just sees that Katara's in danger. Which, chances are, might just be his, his inability to let her go that he just assumes, and then he turned out to be right. I don't know, but, you know. And then Guru Patik is like, if you leave now, you won't be able to go into the Avatar State at all. And Aang's just like, I gotta go, you know. I gotta I gotta leave Dagobah and go save my sister. And Yoda's like, you, you gotta complete your training. You know, it's that fucking thing. It's a good storytelling thing, but it's it's that. Sokka goes to spend some time with his pappy. And uh, that's all very sweet. And we gotta meet Hakoda for the first time. And he's super cool. Um, and don't worry, we'll see more of him a little later on. Um... The other, and then, uh, let's see, Katara discovers that uh, Iroh and Zuko are in Ba Sing Se, because she's like, let's stop for some tea, and then she sees him, and she fucking bolts, uh, and Toph fucking learns how to bend metal, which is really fucking cool in this, in this plot of this show, but becomes even more important uh, in Legend of Korra, because of what Toph does, um, and... It's almost like inventing guns. You know, I'm not sure Toph teaching others to metal bend was a good thing, but that's, uh, that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that later on. But I love that Toph learns how to metal bend because she is so fucking strong and it really fits her character that she's able to whip out that kind of badassicle nonsense. Um, so good on you, Toph. Uh, anyway... They go back to Bossing Se and they all reunite because Katara's in danger and they need to find her. And they couldn't find her because the Earth King doesn't think anything's wrong. Uh, so they go back to the house and Iroh shows up and Iroh's like, I need your guys' help. How the fuck Iroh knew where to find Aang? I'll never know. Uh, but he fucking does. And he's just like, you know, we need to work together. And he also brought like a Dai Li agent with him. How did he manage that? Who the fuck knows? He, Iroh's just a complete badass. Don't even worry about it. Um, also, there's a scene where Iroh breathes fire. Um, here coming up in it, or actually no, after this because Zuko got kidnapped because he's like, I gotta face Azula and he gets his ass kicked. And I was like, I gotta go save my 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 kid. And Zuko gets thrown into the same prison cell as Katara, and they start talking, and uh, they both lost their mother to the Fire Nation. Um, because Zuko thinks his mom is dead. Uh, and they almost have this moment where Katara is gonna heal Zuko's scar, but doesn't. Um, because they show up and then, uh, Iroh's like, we got to talk and Zula shows up and she's like, Zuko, I need your help. You know, I, I can't win this day without you. And I was like, no, don't fucking do that. That's stupid. And Zuko has this war with himself. And unfortunately for us and for Zuko and all that stuff, Zuko chooses incorrectly and he attacks the avatar and, uh, he turns against his uncle who's ar arrested for treason. Um, and it's all very sad. And that is the first of many sad moments in this in this whole thing. Uh, and so Aang and Katara start fighting Azula and Zuko. And they're holding their own pretty well. But then the Dai Li show up um, just to fucking support the bad guys. And they're completely outnumbered. And so Aang gets into his little crystal prison. And he uh, learns to let go of Katara and to reactivate the Avatar Zone. And he, he does this whole glowy thing and he starts to float up. And he's like, I'm going to start whooping some ass. And then Azula hits him in the back with a lightning bolt. And he fucking goes down. And Katara grabs his ass and they get the fuck out of there. Thanks to Iroh covering him. And Iroh just accepts defeat and gets himself kidnapped. Or not kidnapped, but uh, arrested. 
Um, and they're able to save Aang with the water from the, the spirit spirit world up in the North Pole. And I and he's alive again, which is which is great. But the city has fallen. And the Earth Kingdom has fallen to the Fire Nation because of Azula's coup. And that's how the season two ends. And this is what I was saying before about like them achieving their vision because point to me another show like this that's designed for kids where the second season ends in utter and complete failure. They lost and they lost bad and it's a completely hopeless scenario and that is such a fucking baller ass move and I mean, at the start of this, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say the season was perfect. It's pretty much perfect. I mean, sure, there's a couple of moments and in a couple of episodes that aren't great. But they're so few and far between and they're so completely overshadowed by the quality of this fucking season. Of the storytelling, of the character growths and arcs, of the character relationships of the jokes and the writing and the music and the animation it's all fucking incredible and it builds to this incredible climax at the very end where they fucking lose that's awesome i want more things to do that because it's more fucking realistic that you don't win all the fucking time you know that's it's it's how you you grow and it makes season three's inevitable victory so much fucking sweeter. So much fucking sweeter. So, yes, this is a hard season. It's a tough season. It's an emotional season. It's a season that traumatized me when I was a kid to the point where I didn't want to rewatch this season for years. Watching it for the sake of this episode was the first time in years. I figured out and I went back and I thought about it. I had not rewatched Avatar The Last Airbender. Since I was in college, maybe even before then, it has been so fucking long. And pretty much before then was like when the show was coming out, you know? So it had been years, almost uh, almost a decade at this point. So coming back to this world, it's just been phenomenal. So yes, season two is amazing. It is borderline perfect. It is better than season one. And I'm not saying that because season is season one is bad. It's just season two is so much stronger than season one. Not the least of which being that it's the first season and maybe the last season. I don't quite remember. But so far it's the only bit of After the Last Airbender that made me cry. So not tear up, cry. So good job. Thank you all very much for listening to me talk about season two for almost an hour and a half. I hope you enjoyed it. I will see you all next week where I will do the exact same thing for season three. Have a good one, everybody.